We have been going through a imperfect chronological order of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. Part of the reason that it's imperfect is that no one seems to agree on the exact chronological order. And the reason for that is that while we in, in our culture like chronological order, the Hebrew writers were more interested in a theme and to discuss certain things. And so, for instance, if their theme was more about Jesus' healing ministry, they would concentrate on that, even though the healings may not be sequential. Uh, at this time, this is one of those things where there is a debate about the sequential order. The last several messages we've been taking a look at a single evening when Jesus celebrated the Passover, instituted the Lord's Supper, and did other things, and we've been looking at that evening. Now, there are those who believe that when we talked about some of the teaching and the prayer that Jesus prayed, often called the high priestly prayer, uh, that that was done after they left the uh, upper room. I tend to not think so. I tend to think that part of Passover was the celebration of the meal. Jesus also instituted the communion. But in that, there is teaching, which Jesus did, and there's prayer, which Jesus did. So I think all of those things happened while they were still collected together in that room. But if I'm wrong, oh well, it's not a real doctrinal issue. And so that's why I've placed this verse where I have rather than before. And so in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30, it says this, And after singing a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. So even we, when we celebrate Passover Seder, we end by singing some type of song. Now, him, they didn't pull out the Baptist hymnal and pick one of their favorites. They probably sang a psalm uh, that they had set the music, but we don't know. They, they set something that was a part of it, and in essence, kind of the official close to the Savior. And so after singing that hymn, they then proceeded to the Mount of Olives, while others say they proceeded to the Mount of Olives uh, before. And then it says this, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now this Gethsemane is up by the Mount of Olives, and it's a garden. It's a place where people would go to find beauty and quiet and rest and tranquility. And so Jesus goes there late at night to pray after this long evening of the Passover Seder, the teaching and the prayer. So he went there and he said, he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be John and James. So he takes three of his inner membership of the disciples and, it, and he began to be grieved and distressed. So it's obvious that what's going on in Jesus's uh, life is, is such 
that it's having an impact, and they can tell even that he is not just bothered, but he is grieved and distressed. And so he says, Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. So he tells them, I'm going to leave you three here, having already left the, other, the, the rest of the eleven further run. And I want you especially to be watchful with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. Now, typically, the way many religious people pray is they would stand placing their hands out and looking up to God. This we see that Jesus is truly distressed and he is making himself supine. He's proned out praying in essence showing his submissiveness to the Father. He fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. A very short prayer. Jesus has taught his disciples. The whole point of prayer isn't to say a whole lot. It's to get to the point and ask God. But notice he makes his request known, but his request is known, but the will of God is more important. This is what I want, but your will be done. In our prayer life, how many times have we stopped when there's something that we really want? And we even think that God would really want it. That we would say, God, give me X. And everything's cool. But Jesus says, God, this is what I want. Let this cup pass from me. But your will. It's not about me. It's about your will. I find this interesting. Because Jesus has been teaching and fully well knows that he was sent from the Father. And he's going back to the Father. This cup that he's talking about is not the death on the cross. Many people have died on the cross. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's excruciating. And in what we will see, it will be humiliating and many other things. But I think the reason he's praying this prayer is for two reasons. Reason number one. We sing a song, and a part of the verse says, but he who knew no sin became sin for us. You see, Jesus was perfect. Sinless. And now he is going to bear the weight of the sin of us. Now, the, now there are theologians that will debate 
whether his atonement is limited or unlimited. And we can argue back and forth whether the atonement is limited or unlimited. Let me tell you this. If you have never sinned, one sin is going to impact you. You see, we get used to it because we're sinful by nature. It's just what we are. That's what we do. But it's not who Jesus is or was. He was sinless. And the idea of taking, you know, the sins of the world on him, just kind of, just your sins. Just think about how that would impact him, your sins. And that whole idea of going from pure, sinless to sinful has got to be unimaginable. And the second thing, reason I think is because he realizes, because we're going to see it later on the cross, that he who has always been with the Father will soon say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's that separation. You see, we've been separated from God a lot. We choose to. It's no big deal to us. But for Jesus, this is unimaginably horrendous. So no wonder he's in distress and agony because he's facing not death, but he's facing sin and separation. And so he prays. Verse 40, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Now, I frequently am very uh, critical of the disciples because I see so much of me in them. And so it's easy to be critical of them because I wasn't there. I could have done better, but in reality, I'd have probably done worse. But they're saying, Jesus is going, look, you've seen me deeply distressed I've asked you to pray. Why aren't you praying? Well, if you've ever participated in a Passover Seder, you know it's a long evening. you got to set up. you got to prepare. The meal is there. You eat. You drink about four cups of wine. You, he's been teaching, and his teaching is, if you will, advanced calculus. He's teaching some very heavy topics. Their minds are exploring floating with, with the teaching and the seriousness of it. It's been a long evening. They've done a lot. It's been a long week. Going back and forth from Beth, uh, Bethany to Jerusalem and back, teaching in the temple, doing all of these things, and now this very long evening. And so I kind of cut them some slack at this point. They're tired. It's night. How many of you have ever been praying on your bed and you just fall asleep? It's what they do. They just fell asleep. There was no evil intent. They're just tired. Verse 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus said, okay, you're not at a point where you can pray intercessorily for me. Okay, I get it. Long day, you're tired. Then pray for you. 
you got you got a dog in this fight. You need you have some needs. So pray that you may not go into temptation. Okay, don't you don't have to pray for me. Pray for yourselves. And then he says something that we all kind of use as an excuse. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't we use that as, as, as that expression as a, a cop out? Yeah. I was willing, but that temptation got to me because the flesh is weak. Jesus is saying, then the antidote for that is prayer. And he went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. So he kind of words it slightly different. He's coming to the conclusion, okay, God is not going to change His will. Let your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy. So again notice. The scriptures give them. An excuse. They're tired. They had good intentions. They're just tired. 44, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. I want you to see something. Jesus, the Son of God, prayed three times for something. And God's answer was no. Now, I know I live in a culture that it's all about us, so I'm going to make it about us for a, a, a moment. Who do you think you are if you ask God for something and his answer is no? When the Son of God asked three times for something and the answer was no. And you should praise God that his answer was no. Because you would be lost and bound for hell. If God would have said, okay, Jesus, change a plan. Come on home now. Then we would be lost and going on our way to hell. But God's answer was for our good, not his. For our blessing and not his. And so when God says no to you, and you ain't the son of God. Yeah, we're children of God, but you ain't that son of God. And if he said no to Jesus, then it's okay to say no to you. And maybe the reason he's saying no to you is maybe for your good, or maybe for somebody else's good, or maybe for the church's good, or maybe for the world's good, but you don't know that's why we say, God, this is what I want, but guess what? I don't know it all. I don't know what your plans are. So your will be done and not mine. And let me give you another example of a person who prayed three times and the answer was no. He was a pretty influential person in the church. He changed his name from Saul to Paul. And we see in Corinthians that he prayed three times that God would remove the thorn from the flesh. 
Now, I always love that because it's kind of comparison here. Jesus prayed three times. But it's kind of like Paul said, you know, I'm used to God answering my prayer. So it's kind of unusual. I had to pray three times, and I prayed three times. And God's answer was, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And maybe when we pray, God, do X. And God says, no, maybe the reason is that his grace might be sufficient for us. And that in our weakness, his strength might be made perfect. Jesus prays three times. Now, as an unprofitable slave and one who knows my heart and the one who's not all that thrilled with humanity as a whole, I think we're fortunate God said no. And that we're fortunate that God is God and not me. Because I'd have probably said, you know, these people just ain't worth it. Even the best of them can't keep watch with me an hour. The ones who I've lived and taught for three and a half years, who obviously have seen my distress and my agony in my soul, checked out. But you know, God isn't, he doesn't just love. God is love. And so when we say that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the cost. Now during this prayer time that Jesus is praying three times, he prays, he goes back, he prays, he goes back. There is something happening, and I think it's probably during this third prayer. That's why I place it here. But again, it's an imperfect chronological order. In Luke 22, starting with verse 43, it says this. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. You see, Jesus in his agony was not left alone by God. God sent an angel to minister to him. And oftentimes when God requires something special from he will send ministers. Now they may be angels in the sense of you and I who come to encourage and support or it may be an angelic host. But in this difficult time, God sent an angel to minister, strengthening him. And being in agony... He was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Now again, it says blood like, sweats like blood. And so you'll people say, well, it's, it's an analogy, it's an allegory, it's like, so therefore it's a simile. He didn't really bleed, it just looked like it. And some say, well, maybe it's sweat mixed with blood and others say no and whatever. I don't know. But I'll tell you this, Jesus 
was so much in agony. Not only did it affect him psychologically, it affected him physiologically. How many times have we prayed to avoid temptation that so much that it affected us like this? That we're that intent on speaking to God. That we resist as he did. Now, not a medical doctor, but I've heard that when this happens, that your your skin becomes hypersensitive. If that is true, and I suspect that it is, all the things that we're going to see over the next few messages about what happens to Jesus means that it is going to hurt and he's going to suffer extremely greatly. It's just not the simple agony of physical abuse, but it is skin is so sensitive, even the touch hurts. And I know some of you know what that feels like. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Notice, they were tired. They were unaware. And now apparently they're sorrowful. And in that sorrow, it still causes them to sleep. Let's face it, one of the best defense mechanisms for avoiding bad things is to take a nap. And so apparently the best way to deal with what's happening is sleeping it off. And said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Notice again, Jesus does say, why aren't you praying for me? He's saying, why aren't you praying for yourselves? Verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. So Jesus is there. He's just admonished his disciples why they're not praying. Judas and a crowd comes. And Judas is in front of the pack as they come. Late at night. In a garden that's supposed to be serene. Going to betray him. By a kiss. A sign of affection. A sign of closeness. You know, some cultures, we, they kiss each other on the cheek. Even the scriptures say, we are to greet one another with a holy kiss. It's to show that we are united, that we are together. And Judas has decided to choose a kiss as the sign of betrayal. What irony. I love you so much, Jesus, I'm handing them over to you to crucify you. That's how much I love you, Jesus. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Are you, you're not just betraying 
a friend. You're not just betraying a rabbi. You're not just betraying that one who has taught you and lived with you for about three and a half years. You are betraying the son of man. Make sure you know exactly what you've done. When those who were around him saw that what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So they're ready to fight. They're going to protect Jesus. You know, Jesus kind of said, everybody's going to scatter and whatever. And they're going, no, no, we're here. We're ready to go. And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And so we see somebody, and it's probably Peter. Because Peter is the one who kind of acts. And after all, Jesus said, you're going to die me. So he's going to prove that he's no coward. So he takes the sword, whacks off the guy's ear. We'll not talk about him later, but it's believed he later becomes a disciple. This one who loses his ear. But Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Notice Jesus is betrayed. There are those who have come to arrest him. And he performs miracles on them. That he might be healed. That he might be as he was before he came to arrest Jesus. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple, the elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? Speaks right out. You're treating me as if I'm a common criminal. While I was with you daily, in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Jesus said, this whole week of Passover, I've been teaching in the temple. You could have had an opportunity to arrest me then. Why didn't you do it? Because they were afraid of the people. It's easier to take Jesus late at night than in front of the people. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Jesus said, I'm submitting because this is your time. And you've been given authority to do what you're going to do. They're yours. If you haven't been there, turn to Matthew 26, verse 52 through 56. And it says this. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will not at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus, if you're going to take up the sword, you're going to die by the sword, especially in this because there's more of them than there are of you, and I'm coming to do what I'm supposed to do. But he says, I don't need your help. 
If I wanted to, I could call my father and he would send 12 legions of angels. Now that's a whole lot of people. Especially when you take a look at the scriptures. And the scripture says one angel, by the authority of God, takes Satan and throws him into the pit. I suspect we're not as powerful as Satan. So if Jesus has the authority to call 12 legions of angels to come to his rescue, then I suspect no power on earth can withstand him. But you see, this is why Jesus came. And when people say that, well, the events of history just rolled like a, a rock over a boulder over Jesus and crushed him, they are so wrong. This is why Jesus came. This is why he's submitting to it. And notice what he says. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled? which say it must happen this way. Now I want you to understand something. There are those who will tell you that Jesus does things because the scriptures tell that he's going to do things. I think that's wrong. Jesus is going to do things and the scriptures tells us what Jesus is going to do. They have it backwards. Jesus doesn't follow a roadmap. The roadmap told us what Jesus, so when we see Jesus doing things in the scripture, then that's him. That's the Messiah. He's not doing it to confirm who he is. He's doing it because the scriptures told it so that we might trust it. Now, Jesus is the word of God. And I could stand here and if Jesus changed his mind and did whatever, I could, I could logically say, well, he's the son of God. He's not bound to the scriptures. He can do whatever he wants to do because he's God. Notice how seriously God, the word of God, takes the word of God. That he will not do anything that contravenes the word of God. And if him being the son of God, and we could argue has the right to change the scriptures, doesn't, then who are you and I to change? The scriptures. That's how important the word of God is. That it be followed, not because it must be followed, but to be followed because it's our indication of who he is. We can trust the word of God. Because even when it may be to Jesus' benefit to change it, he does not do it. So when you hear people changing the word of God, you might want to avoid them because it's probably not going to end up good for them. You see, Jesus has had plenty of time. He's prayed three times. He's asked his disciples to pray. And he's had the opportunity to call 12 legions of angels to intervene. But he does not do it. Because he's obedient to the word of God. He's obedient to the Father. 
if a slave is not higher than his master, then who are we to think the Word of God doesn't apply to us? The Word of God can be changed to our benefit. We need to take what God says seriously. We need to understand how serious our Lord and Master took the Word of God. So much so that he did it not for our his benefit, but for ours. His love is amazing. His love is awesome. And we have been instructed to love each other the way he loved us. That may be our prayers don't get answered because we're loving us. Maybe people don't support us in our hour of need. They didn't him either. And he didn't bend the word of God to suit his purposes, but to glorify him. And we should do as well. And we should acknowledge how amazing that love is. He did so freely of his own accord because he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And maybe we should use that in our prayers a whole lot more. And all God's people said,